Disclaimer. Please do not email us about the historical inaccuracies we are sure to make. We are not historians. We are idiots. I'm Jackie. I'm Kate. Corner historian extraordinaire. Kate, joining us this this uh, episode of Anachronismo. She is the best. Beats the rest. <laughs> We're right here. We're crying. Cold Max. I, I, what would I do? Oh, oh, you call someone the best, it means everyone else isn't. Oh, and we were right here next I'm, to you. I'm only dating Kate of everyone here, so... Oh, sure, just rub more salt yeah. in the wounds, man. Yeah, guys. Yeah, none of us are dating Kate except for you. That's you right. You make Kate feel bad. Uh-huh. <laughs> she's not dating herself. She's not dating herself. Well, uh, she's learned by now. Okay, <laughs> you can do better. You can date yourself. Don't, don't tell I'm, her that. Maybe she, 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 I want her to dump me for herself. Uh, I tried that for a while. It was lonely. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Going to some dark places this week on Anachronismo! Uh, today I have a story of Santa Anna's two, I believe, right legs. What? Yeah. You had two right legs? No. She had two right legs. No. Okay. We had a real right leg and a fake right leg. Oh, okay. Uh, and they both had... Spoofs and goofs? Spoofs and goofs, Got yeah. It. And I'm talking about the 1912 Lawrence Textile Strike, also known as the Strike of Bread and Roses. And I'll be talking about war elephants and their use in World War II. And I'll be making spoofs and goofs on all of them, because I get to take the wig off, because we have a guest host. Uh, uh, so sorry, just to edit was his left leg. He okay. had two left legs. Okay, so, look, well, so, you better get your story. So straight. like the thing you said, but the opposite. Oh, the opposite, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And his arms, were they also fake? Uh, didn't say. Was uh, he just a quadrupedal dog with four fake legs? All of them left. All that's, of them left. That's insensitive. That would be a quadrupedal horrifying dogs everywhere. sight of just some... Weird beast running on four weird different left legs. <laughs> yeah, so I guess you could say though that he had two left feet. That makes sense for a dog. Yeah, dogs do have two left feet. Alright, so eighteen thirty-six, mm-hmm. uh, Mexico and France were involved in a war called the Pastry War. Mm-hmm. That uh, General Santa Anna um, came out of retirement to uh, he was done making croissants until they needed him again in the he, pastry war. He saw too many good men being poked in the belly and giggling. By bayonets! Oh, his wife's have a horrible <laughs> image of the Pillsbury Joe boy. Yeah, Liz his guts spilling out. I'll never, I'll never watch another souffle fall like I did that day. So, yeah, he uh, was called out of retirement. Wait, but why is but it called the Pastry War? Pastry War was apparently because a lot of uh, French shops um, were being robbed uh, in Mexico. And so um, 
one of the most famous cases was a baker had gone to uh, the French governing, or I think it was actually in France, that they uh, were just complaining that all their stores were being robbed. And so since he had, like, the, he had lost the most or something, uh, the French pretty much sent a big old invoice to Mexico to be paid for uh, 600,000 pesos, uh, which was apparently a lot at the time, and um, Mexico didn't pay it, and so they went to war, and they called it the Pastry War, after the baker who was robbed. Yes, because, all right, yep, and it's because uh, his stores had lost 60,000 so about 10% of the overall demand that wow. France ultimately put on to Mexico to pay. Um, and so they went to war, this pastry war, and um, Santa Anna got shot uh, by a French cannon, and doctors had to amputate his leg. So uh, originally he had his leg buried in his house, pretty much. Mm -hmm. um, but after uh, he became president of Mexico in 1842... Santa Anna got his leg exhumed, and he put a full military parade on for it in Mexico City, where it was, it was transported in a coach. Uh, I'm seeing leg floats, yeah. little leg-shaped candies being thrown out, they, Mr. Leg, dressed in the big leg outfit that all the children love. They had, they had speeches and poems and cannons. Like, it was supposed to be like an entire just military parade to bring his leg to um, to bring his leg to uh, a cemetery monument and to bury it. Wait, they had it exhumed for this. So yeah. It was already buried. Yeah, it was already yeah. buried in his house. But once he uh, once he became president, he uh, okay. he used his position to give the leg the proper burial it had always deserved. Well, I guess it's like going to your own funeral. Most people say that would be fun to hear all like the good stories that people would say. <laughs> I imagine Santa just getting up there and having his like right leg tap out a speech. <laughs> Ever wonder if, like, maybe the reason he had to bury it like that is it was like haunting the inside of his house, like kicking against the floorboard. The sound of one leg stomping in the night down the hallways for all the war crimes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pay back for the bread. I'll pay back to stop that infernal stomping. Tear up the floorboards. There, there is my tap dancing leg. <laughs> Spooks and goofs. Spooks and goofs. Um. <laughs> It shames me that I've made that go that joke relevant for you. Uh, as it um, should, my darling. <laughs> but, um... Sad story for the amputated leg. Didn't make it. Did it? <laughs> no, it A dog was, stole it. It was already dead. A dog jumped up on the float, grabbed it in his mouth, and just ran off down the streets. No, the, um... The leg was buried for two years. Oh, did they brine it first? Hey, I imagine that they did... Listen, do something to preserve it, but... Listen, France, we're sorry about the pastries. We have a little special something to make it up to you. <laughs> do you like pickles? Now, do you eat pickles and just wonder, oh, I, this pickle's big, but it's. I wish it were more like the size of a leg. It's gotta something just you eat could, something a little meaty. A pickle you could really sit your, sink your teeth into. Do you wish your pickles were more savory and horrifying? <laughs> Well, do you wish they were wearing Mexican pantaloons? Mm. Do you wish they were redolent of feet? Well, <laughs> since we assume you answered yes to all of these questions because this is a telegram, we've got a special surprise for you. 
1844, uh, public opinion turned on the president, and so his leg was once again exhumed for the purposes of rioting against the president. So they uh, they took his leg. Really, this is, this is like that time that someone threw a shoe at George W. Bush, but like exponentially more horrifying. <laughs> yep. Uh, would they also steal the Mr. Leg costume and all the leg parade floats? Yeah. <laughs> and just run ride through the city. Yeah, they, they tore down a bunch of his statues, but yeah, the personal stuff started when they dug up his leg because <laughs> they tied it to a rope and dragged it through the streets where two years before that leg was celebrated as a hero. <laughs> like wound up dragged through a road with uh, the people of Mexico City shouting, Death to the Cripple. Really? Oh, yes. man. And just like a pack of dogs chasing him. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. running as fast as it could, but it couldn't catch up with the horse. The, le- the leg's former dog lover was like, oh, the humanity! <laughs> the dog that stole it off the float two years ago was chasing after it, being like, my lot lost love. <laughs> so, yeah, so, uh, didn't say what happened to that leg after that. I, uh, imagine it was gone forever now. Uh, probably not buried again, so... Mm-hmm. So that's what happened to his amputated leg. But he also has a story for his uh, aesthetic leg as well. Mm. About 10 years later, another war. I think it was the Mexican-American War, 1947. Mm-hmm. Uh, not as exciting of a story, but apparently he was, he was at lunch and his prosthetic leg was not on. Mm. And um, there was a battle that started and... During the battle, uh, it was a sneak attack. They galloped up and took his leg and threw it off. So that leg is now... now did, uh, did they just like, go and like, swipe it off of him, or did they knock him down and take it off? I think he's... He, he I, wear I can't imagine how far away his leg... I think it was that he just had to get out of there. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he was the one who retreated from mm-hmm. the battle, and then I think he left the leg behind, so Americans saw it. So I phrased that wrong. It's not like their goal of the sneak mission was that they were going to run in Grab the leg and then get out. They uh, the leg was just a boon to okay. the uh, to the surprise. The leg was a- that would be a great heist movie though. <laughs> <laughs> the codes are in the leg. <laughs> We've got five minutes till this leg explodes. Um, and so the uh, yeah, the leg was kept by a sergeant who tried to uh, exhibit it around at county fairs for a dime. <laughs> Uh, a dime a look. And then eventually it was, uh, in that, since 1922, it's been in the uh, Illinois National Garden Museum. Where it's still there today. Now, does the Illinois National Guard have any embarrassing traditions vis-a-vis leg? I would imagine so. Do you have to, like, drink out of the leg? You know, I don't think that's something that they would admit to on their website, but, uh, you know, they've had to. You could, you could try giving them a call. Oh, yeah, okay, hold on, here, here we go. Uh, hi, uh, Illinois National Guard. Uh, yeah, that's us. Uh, hi, uh, do you do you get get wasted and uh, do stuff to Santa Ana's leg? Sir, you promised never to call this number again. Uh, I I know I know, but I don't want to talk to uh, to Paul again. I just want to hear about the leg. Sir, that's classified information. Okay, okay. So I'm taking that as a yes. Uh, just say say things classified. If uh, if you drink out of the leg. And uh, don't say it's classified if you uh, if you don't drink out of the leg. Um, I, I can't follow what you just said, okay, so I'm okay, just okay. gonna 
I'm just gonna hang up. So, um, d- again, don't call this number again. Got it, got it. I'll, Paul yeah. does not want to talk to you. Yeah, I'll call you next week. Uh, no. Okay, 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 bye. Like, so yeah, they drink out of the leg. Definitely drink out of the leg. Alright, cool. I had confirmation from the man high up. The guy who answers the phones. <laughs> Those calls just get routed to the president right away. Right away. That's that is that is that is Donald Trump on the line. It definitely sounded like him. Definitely Donald that was a full full Donald Trump. Full Trump. Uh, I'm sad if he's our president. But let's move on. Yeah, so that's uh that's it. Two legs, both stolen from Santa Ana at some point, and one's in a museum, and one probably rotted away in the desert. I mean, where would you want your, if you lost a leg, and then yeah. had a prosthetic leg, and then lost that prosthetic leg, what would you, where would you want, would have wanted both of them to end up? Uh, I would want the prosthetic leg to be turned into a lamp, and, uh, and used uh, in a, uh, in a low-budget Christmas movie. Uh, and the real leg, I would want someone to uh, accidentally barbecue and eat. For my fake leg, I would want someone to uh, paint it colorfully, mm-hmm. perhaps with some a decoupage, mm-hmm. uh, use it as perhaps a colorful piñata. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for the real leg, um, I would like it to be put in one of those deep sea, like, brief funeral things that's used to, like... A beautiful reef could grow out of my leg. Mm. It would be the legs of the sea. Oh. That's, that's, that's beautiful. beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I would like my real leg to be preserved in some manner. Like, not just... Amber. I wasn't going for amber. Mm. No. Um, but I want it to be preserved in some manner and then used in a department store to display shoes. Oh. Um, that way it still has some function, you know? Um, and then my fake leg, I hope it goes to um, a needy person of similar stature who is also missing a leg. That is very generous of you, Jack. Yeah, that's yeah. it's beautiful. That's what, I, that's what I meant to highlight with my <laughs> with my leg how how fashionable and generous I am. That's good. I mean, you know, yeah, I'm more more now. generous than anyone else who answered. Um, so. my leg is used for beautiful sea fishes. I, yeah. my, I my leg feeds the high. I haven't even answered <laughs> what I would want my legs to be. So what do you want your legs I'll to I'll see how... Yeah, my legs, um, I would want uh, both of them to be turned into uh, special fireproofed uh, prosthetic legs for, uh, for firemen. So that, uh, so that they can still go into fires even with their missing legs? Lives. Yeah, yeah. So. Both of your legs would be saving lives. Both my legs would be saving that's, lives. That's very beautiful. <clears throat> and and uh, on the side, uh, you should just write "Pay it forward" mm, with like a little winky face. A winky face and oh like a gosh. full transcript of that movie's script, including <laughs> the part inside. Yeah, including the part where Harold jo- Haley Joel Osment gets stabbed. Use one of those legs for the fill the boot campaign, but it's just a leg. <laughs> Uh, the fill the boot, is it the one where you have a giant shoe and you're supposed to fill it up with, uh, it's with coins? The, it's when the firefighters stop traffic and uh-huh. they just hold a fireman's boot and they like hold it to the car windows <laughs> until people donate enough money. Okay, yeah. I would want to have the prosthetic and the real one both hollowed out and used for the same purpose. Yeah, just um, go up to the nearest car and be like, um, fill her up. Mm-hmm. Can I change mine? 
I would like my prosthetic leg to be made into a flute to be played at firemen parades. And I would like my real leg to be used in firemen's chili, to be fed to them while they are waiting around in the firehouse, <laughs> until they can have enough strength to play the flute of my prosthetic leg. I mean, they do say firemen are excellent chefs. Excellent chefs and excellent flute players. You Fine, know, you're all more generous than you know, me. I'm, I'm gonna change my answer too. I want the I, I still want to do the fill the boot for one of them, but if I want them to have different purposes, I want the other boot to be the uh, they're the other leg. Uh, we'll say the we'll say the prosthetic leg to be at the um, to be at the end, like the bottom of the fireman's pole. So it's like people are sliding down one giant brass leg. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I want to change my answer for my prosthetic leg. Mm-hmm. I want to give it to um, a homeless dog, so he's not quite as lonely. Oh, uh, well, Jack, you, you, everyone needs some. So you want you, you would want your leg to be a, a dog, real doll. You know, it's not about me. It's about what the dog needs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think we've come to the conclusion that Jackie is the least generous. Least generous. Yeah, generous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fine. Your leg's not even a flute. <laughs> Can't even make music. <laughs> I'm gonna cut off all your legs and we'll see how generous you are. Well, first of all, mine will be delicious chili. So, <laughs> second of all, that's not being generous, Jack. Yeah, that's that's, that's hoarding legs. Hoarding legs. Yeah. You're a leg hoarder. You're like the Ebenezer screw. Your strange, off legs. Your strange addiction is legs. But that'll make the, it. I hope the ghost of three crushed spirits walk like walk into your room and. Try to show you the errors of your ways. They'll walk into my room and I'll have to put my water glass down on my on my three legged bedside <laughs> table. The first ghost is going to be Santa Anna, the ghost yes. of legs past. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, second ghost is going to be Tiny Tim, the ghost of legs present, but not for long. And the final ghost will just be my leg, but a flute. <laughs> just like eerie flute music. Yeah, eerie flute music coming from nowhere. <laughs> is your toe going to be pointing at what the grave of a leg? Uh, yes. At Jackie's leg grave. <laughs> and we'll show them all the diabetics in the world. Is it, is it uh, just going to be a tombstone with a leg carved on it? Uh, I mean, a tombstone in the shape of a leg, yes. <laughs> Even better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kate, why don't you take us away? All right. So today I'm going to be talking about the 1912 Lawrence textile strike, also known as the strike of bread and roses. So, uh, in 1912, um, what happened is all of these super rich dudes who owned mills got together and they're like, hey, look at all this cheap land in Massachusetts. Let's build a bunch of mills for, like, really cheap all along this river and then build a dam to work those mills. And that's exactly what they did. So, um, this had some impacts on people um what happened was a lot of skilled laborers uh got replaced by unskilled laborers and um, a lot of immigrants and women ended up working in these mills so there were people from like 40 different nationalities and the vast majority of these people were between 14 and 18 so like a dawson's creek of mill workers yeah sure like dawson's creek sexy young teens sure like all, all, all alone like, in a new country 
having like sexy adventures. Sexy yes. young unskilled teenagers. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, are teenagers unskilled ever skilled? Labor. You know, like sexy adventures, like um, tuberculosis and uh, measles, and like thirty percent of them dying before they reached age. 30. Very fashionable at the time, yes. I mean, tuberculosis was super fashionable at the time, I guess. So, there's that. <laughs> 1900s tuberculosis parties. Rich, fancy, elegant, disease-ridden parties. Full of unskilled laborers and teenagers. That's, that's the, what was the fashion back then. <laughs> that sounds like a really badly like scripted TV. <laughs> <laughs> Disease party. <laughs> Dawson's cough. <laughs> this is like, Joey, the way you cough blood into your handkerchief. <laughs> I you can't stay so- away. I'll be back on my canoe tomorrow night. <laughs> your cheeks are so pale, but my love is so warm. <laughs> your cheeks are so pale, but your blood is so red. I can't. I never saw Dawson's I, 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 I don't either. <laughs> uh, nor have I. All right, so Dawson is in love with Joey, the girl next door. Okay. Right. Um, and they live on a creek, uh-huh. so when they go visit each other after, you know, nighttime, bedtime or whatever, they yeah. get in their little canoes and they canoe to oh. each other's homes. Oh. Wait, is that real? Yes. That's what? very cute. That's kind of cute. It's adorable. Yeah, that's very cute. Uh, Where does Jughead come in? Jughead is not in that show. What? What? Yeah. You're thinking of they the curly-haired guy named Casey. Okay, okay. He's what a about, goofball. What about Reggie Mantle? What, 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 what role does he play? Um... There's like a there's like a popular girl character. I think that would probably be that. That'd be Veronica, or Betty maybe. Betty's also um, really popular. Yeah, Betty is more the Joey character. Okay, so Betty Cooper is Joey, and Archie Andrews is Dawson. Yeah. Okay. Okay, and he's bad at everything. Like it's kind of weird that everyone loves him so he's much because he's bad at everything. He's a poet, which is nice. Oh, okay. Okay. Like Archie was a guitar player. I'm not familiar with Archie. Okay, well, well, let me explain Archie Comics to you. Okay, this is the history of Archie Comics with Max Kreisky. Uh, Three hours later. And so they all go down. So who's the Casey? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, why does Dawson hate Mondays and eat lasagna? Oh, uh, because uh, he is a voice for the voiceless. And lasagna is delicious. Uh, speaking of voices for the voiceless, time to get back to our very special <laughs> presentation. Oh, yeah, sorry. Sorry, I'll, I'll edit all of that uh, stuff about Archie Comics out. Sounds was, good. It took a while. I mean, I enjoyed your in-depth history. And you started crying at that one moment. Yeah, it was like really that. touching. Like, I was expecting to laugh, but it, it wasn't funny. It was thoughtful. Yeah, no, when, when, when Archie's dog became a zombie uh, after saving him from another zombie dog, and then Archie had to kill his zombie dog, you know, it's, it's, it's a moving... Maybe it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. All right, well. So anyway, people were dying, a lot of them. Mm, Yes. And so they decided to reduce... Change your tone. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile... My, my, my tone may change may have not been appropriate. No, no, it's so cool. (laughs) Look, these people lived like a hundred years ago, so... Anyway. Well, they died a hundred years ago. <laughs> oh. Died prematurely a hundred years That's ago. That's right. Uh, anyway, so they generously reduced the work week from um, 56 hours to 54 hours. 
Whoa. I know. I know. It was... Frankly, I think they might have gone a little too far. Those two hours, they're going to be such layabouts. Yeah, they're going to go make out down by the creek in their canoes. Charitable Jackie, how many hours would you have slashed? Oh, um... Well, first I would find out how many hours were leading to the deaths. Um, and then probably just put, like, one more hour than that one. One, one more hour? Yeah. See, I would, I would just cut down to a 30-hour work week. Your sounds production like communism. would be destroyed. Uh, what? Production would be destroyed. Uh, I could I would hire more people on, uh, you know, but, uh, but, you know, same wages. Or keep wages the same all over. You don't sound like a good businessman. Maybe I'm not, but I'm a kind businessman. And my sexy teens don't die of tuberculosis. <laughs> so I don't have to keep training new ones. It works in the long run, because I'm not wasting money. I'm constantly having to train new, not-dead teens. And the teens you have are sexier. Uh, sexier and better better able to work. So they're more productive when they do work. That's right. Because mm-hmm. they have more sleep. And they can use some of that time to go to Makeout Creek so they're not always making out. And they're making more teenagers. There you go. So I'll get more people to buy and work for me. That's, That's what I call reproductive. chain management. That's what I call reproductive labor. Oh. <laughs> so yeah. Everyone said, this is great, uh, as long as we don't get paid less. Spoiler alert, they reduced their wages by 32 cents. So, everyone decided to go on strike. And the way that this happened is the International uh, Workers of the World, also known as the Wobblies, uh, said a couple... <laughs> it's true. It's so cute. That's oh, what the they call them, though. You know, the great thing about the Wobblies is you can't push them over because their bases are so wide. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Metaphorical. It's like a weevil. Yeah. It's like a weevil. It's like a weevil wobble. Aw, listen to you. So, um, the, the Wobblies <laughs> sent in two men, uh, Joseph uh, Ettor and uh, Artino Giovanniti. Uh, they're both Italians, and uh, one of them was from the Wobblies, and the other one was from the Socialist Party of America. So what they did is they created a committee of 14 different nationalities, um, and that committee made all of the decisions. And the really cool thing about what the Wobblies did is that um, a lot of people had trouble getting people to strike because they were so ethnically divided. So, like, you had Quebecois and you had Italians and Hungarians and, and people from Eastern Europe. And these people either didn't want to or couldn't talk to each other. And the Wobblies worked to get everyone to come together. And even though they were women who had not that much power back then and people who couldn't talk to each other they got everyone to work together and all strike at once so they began the strike in early january of 1912 in massachusetts and it was very very cold so you know when you go to strike usually you're barring entry to the mills so that they can't you know hire scabs or whatever um scabs are people hired when people go on strike um and they turned hoses on them and uh, it was not great. And then they threw ice back at them because screw the man. Am so I the right? striking workers threw ice back yes. at the people. Was this the same ice created by the hoses? Almost certainly. <laughs> so did the ice freeze midair from the hoses in a comical, cartoonish way? I like to imagine that it did. It sort of softens the whole. You know, it's it makes it a little fun. Oh, was there one? It's less sad than yeah. if you snap it off from your elbow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But maybe a little less sad if you imagine a little sad trombone noise while that happens. Well, uh, did anyone freeze in a perfectly cubicle uh, ice cube from I, having water sprayed on them? I'm pretty sure that's just basic science. Basic science. Their eyes is shifting left and right yeah, in a panicked manner. Yeah. Yeah, you know, normal things that happen in real life. Yeah. Of course, you know, this is a very scientifically based podcast. Yeah. Science, the podcast. That's what they call it. Mm-hmm. It's the Scient- subtitle for anachronismo. Scientifonismo. So yeah, but they they managed to hang on through all of this, and um, they so Joseph Ator and uh, Giovanni did a really good job organizing the strike, and um, that ended up being a bit of a problem for them. So. So Joseph Ator and uh, Arturo Giovanni. And they were. Workers with, they were people sent by the IWW. So one had been sent by the Socialist Party of America and the other had been sent by the Wobblies to organize people. The Wobblers. Ah, the Wobbly Wobblers. Yeah, the Italian Wobblers. Okay, okay. And uh, did they, was one of them a loose cannon and the other one was by the book? Yeah, I would say that Giovanni was definitely the loose cannon. He was a poet and like very idealistic Mm -hmm. and he's prone to like giving these big speeches. And Joseph Ator was more like the silent, thoughtful type. I see, I see. Yeah. So. So did, did they ever, like, did they, like, first have trouble working together, but then, you know, they found that they were more alike than they were different? Sure. Cool, 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 cool. Just taking some notes from my new uh, CW pilot in the fall. I think, I mean, socialism is so hot with the kids right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you gotta find that show to replace Dawson's Creek. That's right. <laughs> and Giovanni, he would uh, ride a canoe in a creek. That's right. From his backyard to... Date Joseph Ator? Joey. 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 Whoa. Well, okay, okay. Yeah. And they they both had dogs. <laughs> yeah. Both had dogs with humorously themed names. And they have to worry about the new zombie disease from outbreaking at the at the plant. Okay, that's that's what they're organizing. That, okay, that's a very specific subseries of Archie and not in the main continuity. <laughs> I guess, but I thought we were making this pilot and zombies you're, are hot. You're right, we're making spooks and goofs. Yeah. Spooks and goofs. So yeah, this they became really successful at organizing um, the workers, and apparently William Wood, the president of the American Woolen Company, was like, this is kind of bad for me. I'm going to pay a local undertaker, that's not a joke, and a school board member to plant dynamite and frame them for that crime. This it really does sound more and more like a cartoon. <laughs> yeah, no. So did the Undertaker, like, dig a grave? And, like, you're like, I'm just digging a grave. You're in the middle of the strike because someone died from all this water and, like, put put dynamite in it, like, with a big cartoonish fuse and then put, like, a dynamite headstone. We're like, he wanted to be buried under a dynamite headstone. <laughs> well, I'm just respecting his last wishes. You know, the plunger's like the tombstone. <laughs> the tombstone <laughs> So as why Hank? <laughs> so as brilliant as that idea is, and it is brilliant. Um, he was trying to frame them as planting the dynamite themselves. So he wanted to make it look like Joseph and Arturo had done it. Okay, so he made a, so he wrote a poem on the headstone. Yeah, and he wore a, a cartoonish, offensive Italian stereotype mask. Mm-hmm. But people bought that in those days. Yes, yeah. I mean, we're talking about the same people that when they tried Joseph and Arturo, literally put them in a steel cage in, in the court. So, you know. Wow. That's fucked up. <laughs> they treated them like animals. So that's what they became. 
Is this part of your uh, your CW pilot? Yeah, they're going to be played by cartoon pigs. Is is that a, is that like a is that an a, a ethnic stereotype thing? Or no, just... I just think pigs are cute. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Pigs are cute, says Maximilian Kreisky. He's not wrong. He's, he's not wrong. I love no, no, I mean, pigs are cute. Who doesn't love pigs? They're very intelligent. They're very intelligent. Smarter than dogs. They're so good. They're so... Mm, how would a dog taste? That was a delicious dog, Jackie. You really cooked that one up nice. Thanks, it's, enjoy- it's all about the seasoning. I did enjoy the dog bacon. And thanks for giving me the nose. It's the best part of the dog. <laughs> they don't call it a chow chow for nothing. Jackie? Jackie? You've been staring off into space for two minutes now. Oh, sorry, I'm drooling. Sorry, what were you saying, Kate? Uh, um, yeah, so. Another thing they did during the strike that was really clever is, so they were garment workers, so they were mostly women, and, um, you know, women mostly took care of their children. Wait, sorry, to go back. Yeah, yeah? The dynamite uh-huh. heist. Right. Did something happen, and they stopped it in time? Like, did something happen, and they knew so it the- was not the, the uh, two, I guess, like, organizers, or did they stop the Undertaker from planning the Dynamite. So they definitely got framed frame for the planting the dynamite. Um, from my understanding, I don't think anything actually exploded, or if it did, nobody got hurt. Three people did die in the strike, but I don't think any of them died from dynamite. There was one woman who was shot by a police officer. More on that later, maybe. And uh, I'm not sure how the other two people died. Strangled by dynamite. Probably stuck in ice blocks. Yeah, it could have been, yeah, the, that. They got frozen with, in an ice block with a stick of dynamite just oh, out of reach. I know one of them was a kid, and he was um, speared by a bayonet by a police officer. Ooh. Ooh. The 1910s, everybody! It was a crazy time! <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Sorry, I didn't mean to... I brought... I, I done donked up no, again. I was just trying to think of a pond. No, he speared, like, <laughs> with, like uh, in, the, in the belly, like a... Uh, like Hot dog, or was he like speared like a bunch of like chicken, like a kebab? Uh, more like a chicken, because it was through the back. Got stabbed through the back. Uh, yeah. Oof. Was it by his best friend? His best friend stabbed him in the back. Yeah, you really need that for the series. Yeah, Carl Magnus, the kid cop. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't think that's technically canonical, but I think you should go with it for the season. Also, the dynamite has to go off in the series. It has to. No, it'd be a big cliffhanger. It'd be like... And uh, Giovannini and Fred... Giovannini and, and Joseph Ator. Joseph Ator. Joseph Giovannini and Joseph Ator are running from it, and then the dynamite explodes, and they're thrown forward by the explosion. And then they they just sprawl through the dirt, like, like three feet, and then they, they land at the feet of a cop who's like... Has a nice sticker. And it cuts to black because that's the yeah. season finale. Season tune, finale. In, tune in next season to see what happens. Oh, yeah, yeah but their shirts their shirts rip attractively. Yeah, they you see their abs, like all of their abs. Because yeah. they have like a lot of abs. 20 abs. 20 abs. Yeah. 20 because like they're so buff. Abs all the way up to like the bottom of their necks. Yeah, Gio Panini <laughs> is like, Joey, we're going to get through this. They look like apple. weird human corn on the cob. Oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> they don't have an Adam's apple, they have an Adam's ab. <laughs> <laughs> No. Just abs for eyes. No. <laughs> uh, still played by cartoon pigs, though. Still yeah. by cartoon pigs. <laughs> cartoon pigs. No. 
covered in abs. <laughs> and that's just uh, cases have been folded yeah. like innumerable times. <laughs> no. Uh. Despite all the violence and terror of the 1912 Lawrence textile worker strikes, that's the most horrifying thing of all. <laughs> so what, what happened? <laughs> what, happened? Um, what happened in real non-cartoon pig ab life? Okay. Well, so they had this great idea where what they do is they'd send the kids to willing volunteers from other states. So like New Jersey and New York and Vermont and yeah. Philadelphia. And they had one time when they were all gonna load up the kids on the train to philadelphia and the mom was there and the police had warned them and been like if you do this we're going to arrest you but they did it anyway well first of all because you'd never get anything done in a strike if you just said oh the police said we can't so let's not do it but also because like surely the police wouldn't throw a woman and their small children and babies into jail dot 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 the the threat was to arrest the people they were yes. bring in from out of they state. They were going to arrest the women and children who were sending their children out of state. So the, so, ch- so the police didn't arrest them, and it worked perfectly, right? Well, a- they got a really big steel cage. <laughs> and they put a cake in it. And the babies oh. loved the cake. And the babies loved it. Sorry, I'm so good. It was... There were people out of state that were going to send their children to Massachusetts, no. and the police in those states. Or Let me the start over. Families were going to. So, so the yeah. so the women who were in Massachusetts, right? They have children and babies. Now, if you're a textile worker in Massachusetts, it's hard to strike when you have to feed a baby. Sure. So what they'd do is they'd send their kids and babies to other states while they stayed behind to strike. It was oh, kind yeah. of like what they did in England in World War II. Where they send kids off, like to the got countryside. It, it. I'm just imagining some mother giving her like baby, like one year old, yeah. some like you know, just a bindle and like ta-ta, little Billy. A few pennies, just yeah. sending them on their way. But mama, how will I afford the candies? Oh my god, baby's first words. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there's very smart babies in Massachusetts. So anyway. They went, you know, the police said, if you send your children away, we're going to arrest you and your children. And, you know, they had to, they had to make the strike work. So they did it anyway. And also, who's going to arrest moms and their children? But, oh wait, no. They beat and dragged them and, and pulled them into police cars in the freezing rain. Was it more of like the... (laughs) It was, was like the delinquent Clark, kids, though, It was for like sure. the, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to imagine how you soften that blow in that series. I guess you had, like, that cartoon, like, whirlwind of, like, <laughs> yeah. fists and, like, just clowns. Yeah, no, Billy see, Club coming out of one side. I think for your CW show, you should, like, really lean into it. Go full Peter Jackson, like, slow-mo, oh. and, like, mom's just reaching out and, like, going, no. Bring down to the yeah. top of mom's like, no, no. so this baby. <laughs> Using it as a shield. Oh. <laughs> That's uh, so dark. I want to see a full Zack Snyder production in slow and fast mo. Yeah. Of like, oh, yeah. Mom oh, taking yeah. a baby by its heels and is like hurling it into a policeman. The <laughs> <laughs> baby's tumbles end over end. And just grabs onto his face and starts screaming. Maybe uh, Joseph. Uh, uh, Etor and uh, Arturo Giovanitti can be there and it's going like full Sherlock Holmes movie where he's like analyzing how to fight these policemen. Weakness. The babies are soft. 
flinches half a half a centimeter when he sees that he's about to hit a baby. Go for the chest. Imagine <laughs> <laughs> like some shootout scene where they're both like behind these pillars and they're like, "I'm out. Get, I need some more ammo." And they just toss them. <laughs> They just grab the baby and they grab the feet and they grab the arms and they like go and they get back up and down. This is an episode of Anachronismo, Full of Dead Baby Jokes. Wink! That baby's very much alive. You just pulled it by its limbs until it made a noise. She was cocking it. Yeah. Look, we all know that he's going to be making the sound effect with his mouth. There's a little willing suspension of disbelief here. You tie two babies together and make baby nunchaku. Yeah, and then when they are firing the babies, they spit out little pacifiers. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, oh so they, uh, they, <laughs> after they threw them into the cars, um, the woman actually uh, refused to pay bail and stayed in the jail overnight. So it was pretty, pretty freaking brave of them, to be honest. Um, now, lest you think, man, people in 1912 were total barbarians, um, this actually was kind of a turning point in the strike. There's kind of this weird thing with, like, strikes and civil disobedience where, like, in a really perverse way, it's almost good if something terrible happens because it really galvanizes people. So everyone heard about how, heard headlines that were literally police beat babies. (laughs) And drag them into into cars. And they're like, um, this is kind of messed up. Maybe we shouldn't let this happen. <laughs> they called, like, a special, like, house committee. And they heard testimony. And uh, they made it so that they they offered a 5% pay raise after that. And they refused. And in the end, they got all of their strike demands. So, um. And then later, other New England manufacturers followed suit. Because, like, they didn't want to have police strike babies, you know, in the headlines associated with their strike. They unrolled a new line of baby body cams for police officers. (laughs) And that's where the baby monitor came from. That's right. And the famous bumper sticker that says, Save the Babies. You know, you don't see that bumper sticker around much these days, but it lives on in public memory. (laughs) Um, So, the... One th- kind of loose thread that still hasn't been tied here is what happens to our um, brave uh, buddy detectives mm-hmm. and uh, strike coordinators, uh, Joseph Vittor and uh, Arturo Giovanniti. So they were still in jail, and uh, they were in jail for quite a long time until it eventually came out that this undertaker had been, like, literally paid to frame them, and then they were finally released. Uh, One of my favorite parts of this story is Giovanniti was, like, this great poet, and he actually has some kind of cool little speeches that he did. Um, But one of the things that he said was... um, uh, He said, uh, if if another stroke happened after they got out of jail as he was in court he's like the minute we're let out of jail if there's another strike there we shall go again and regardless of any fear and any any threat we shall return again our humble efforts to help the strike workers uh giovanniti never went to another strike after that (laughs) he retired and became a poet (laughs) so um not that I can blame him, but... <laughs> I mean, after seeing all of those babies brutally used as yeah. weapons, giant uh, gravestones made of dynamite, 
It changes a man. It's mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. That ending, though, almost sounds like, uh, kind of like Batman or something. <laughs> Whatever the city needs me, I'll be there. Yeah. That's, like, literally like kind of what he said. Whenever a mother and her baby daughter are arrested and put in jail, I'll be there. <laughs> Whenever rich fat cats refuse benefits, I'll be there. I am... I am the strike. Criminals and corporate fat cats are a cowardly and superstitious lot. That's why I don the costume of a pig. <laughs> <laughs> I shall become a pig. Thought of it because of an incredibly ripped pig was thrown through his mansion window. Yeah. <laughs> and it just, just rolled around squealing. Um, yeah, the Brent Roses strike is probably one of the most famous strikes of that of that era. And you can actually, there's still um, a festival in Lawrence, Massachusetts called the Bread and Roses Festival. It's in every September. So that's a fun, fun event you can go to. Don't worry, there's no freezing cold or getting beaten by police officers or, you know, 54-hour work weeks or any of those other exciting things on Max's upcoming CW series. What was that called again? Uh, it's called Strikers. It's, it's, it's snappy. I like it. So where did the bread and the roses come in? Oh, so um, <laughs> it's basically apocryphal because there was another famous socialist um, activist who um, famously said, uh, the workers must have bread, but we must have roses too, which is, ro- roses kind of symbolizes, like, dignity and, and, like, having, like, a good life beyond just being able to eat. Uh, in like socialist thought so nobody actually said that but like years later upton sinclair wrote like a poem about this strike and he he called it that and and it kind of just because of him because of his blinding star power became associated with it or that it was just a war of dynamite and babies yeah <laughs> uh, they called it the baby back rib strike but not for the reasons you think <laughs> Um, but yeah, labor history, kids, is pretty fascinating. Lots of people stand up to their terrible, terrible bosses, and if you stand up enough, they'll listen eventually. It's a hopeful message. Wink. She said wink, and she also winked. The wink makes me think you're lying. Yeah, I didn't, yeah, that made me feel like there was oh. no hope. <laughs> I just, oh. She was trying to do, like, a hopeful wink. Came out a, a lying I was just wink. trying to make myself seem fun. You are fun. After all, you told us this wonderful story about police using babies as weapons. I'm not That's fun. my takeaway. No. <laughs> I should have talked about the woman that got killed because they thought she was a changeling instead. That's more fun. Wait, no, that's terrible too. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's all terrible. Yeah. History is kind of awful. <laughs> I really brought the room up. <laughs> Spoofs and goofs. Now, if our friend the Italian poet were to write a poem about uh, Santa Anna's leg, um, what would it be called? Or Upton Sinclair. What would Upton Sinclair rename this leg, this leg story? The Legs of the Revolution. Mm-hmm. Running into the surf. Uh, roses are... Red, violets are pathetic. If you lose your real leg, go with prosthetic. That's it. That's the one. That's the one. Like a leg in the sun. 
You know, I really love uh, famous labor organizer and author Upton Sinclair's work, but that last poem about the leg, that was, uh, that was a little different. Who knew he had an interest in, uh, rhyming couplets, in rhyming couplets and Mexican history? It's true. I mean, we are all, we are all multitudes of hidden depths. Mm-hmm. Everyone has their, their deep interest that they don't let out except in poetry. Is that why you have that poem about pig abs? That, Ooh, what's that, your poem about pig abs? Tell it, tell it, tell, tell it, right tell now. it, tell, tell, it, tell, right tell it, tell it. Tell right now. Strong. Muscular. Well abs, indeed. The pig that I see is the pig that I feed. A porcine companion. A snout and a word. A pig is my friend. Why is this absurd? Stole that from Robert Frost. No, Robert Frost stole it from me. Oh, okay. I folded my pig again and again. And the labs popped out from his head to his chin. The pig he had an Adam's ab. The pig was free range, not growing a lab. <laughs> Broaders to knees, from belly to thighs. It was all abs. You could see with your eyes. <laughs> ab upon ab upon ab upon ab. My pig is my friend. This pig I grab. I kissed the pig. I don't know. Snow. It made me so joyful I had to shout out. And that's a- <laughs> This is my pig. This is my man. This pig with the abs is my master plan. I regret Asking about this. I regret asking. It goes on for another five pages. But you I want idea. it here and all. <laughs> five hours later. It took you forever to read through five pages. Yeah. Yeah, I had to stop a couple of times to, to take drinks of water and jack off. You know. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, maybe I'll date myself for a little while. <laughs> Oh. Uh, so, Jackie, you have a story. Jackie, take us away from these pig abs. Yeah. Please. Okay, I'm, I'll try. <laughs> Save us, Jackie. I You're will, our only hope. I will really try. Um, so you know what makes warfare kind of fun? When a large animal is involved. Pig-type animal. No, oh. God, no! <laughs> no. Like a pig with, like, a lot of abs. <laughs> No, I'm talking elephants. You know, those those giant, beautiful, powerful creatures who are almost human. You mean elephant men? You mean the elephant man? No, I mean I mean um I mean elephants. Elephants, because they're intelligent. They're intelligent. They're <laughs> loving, noble. Noble. They have like a th- a th- nose that's like a hand. Mm-hmm. They can paint. Yeah. They Okay, in my research I found out that elephants, though they do not laugh. They have tells, so you know when they find something funny. That makes me so happy. It's in their facial expressions and in their eyes. You can tell when they find something funny. What do elephants find funny? How can we make this podcast funny for elephants? Um, okay, so in my research I came across a particular special elephant that we'll talk about at length at some point. Okay. Um, but this elephant was a working elephant who would help um, in the logging industry. So it would 
as part of its job, carry logs to the river and then throw the logs in so it would then go down to the river to wherever the mill is or whatnot. So this elephant would go to the edge of the river and then pretend to use all of its efforts to throw a log, but not be able to. <laughs> so it would just go like, and then not throw the log. <laughs> I'm giving it my best, but an elephant strength is just not enough. And then the special, because each elephant is like bonded with the special person who trains them and whatnot. So the person would be like, come on, just throw the thing. And then the elephant would throw it, and then it would do the laughing face. It wouldn't actually laugh, but it would do the face. <laughs> Get it? Get it? Because I could throw it the whole time. The whole time. <laughs> I fooled you, you big dummy. <laughs> Humans think they're so smart. <laughs> this one gets them every time. Elephant prank. <laughs> An elephant. It's, it's adorable. That's really cute. I want to be this elephant's friend. I want to quit my job and go raise elephants now. Now, forget friendship. We're talking war oh. right now. War elephants. War against the elephants? No, war... Mm, depends what side you're on. Okay. I suppose. Okay. Um, so elephants have several advantages in warfare um such as they are they terrify people sure if they're charging at you because they got one of those big spooky masks because they're enormous um, and they're so goddamn cool big spooky richard nixon masks that they all and they sneak up behind you and jump out of you and boogie 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 yep (laughs) yep that's what they do um so they have the ability to frighten both men and horses so if one one army has elephants, the other one has horses. The elephants come charge, and the horses freak out and, like, buck people off and, like, hit other people. Yeah, I don't know about you, but if I was a horse and I saw an elephant coming at me, I'd be like, oh, fuck this. What did they do to that horse? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. I, what, I thought I was the biggest. Yeah. I stared into the eyes of death. How old is that horse? Am I gonna get like that? <laughs> I thought I was God's most beautiful creature. <laughs> so the Mongols had a way around that, because um, when the other army that the Mongols were fighting, which were the Sultans of Delhi, would send their elephants in, they would attach bits of hay to their camels, which close enough to horses, and then light that hay on fire to cause the camel to keep going against the elephant. So that's how they got around that fear that elephants yeah. inspire. Yeah. Wait, so afraid of elephants? Do they far more afraid of fire? Well, the, the elephants... fire is attached to them, yeah. so they yeah. feel like they gotta move. But did the elephants run away from the on fire camels? Because, like, presumably, like you know, people with war elephants were people riding them, or was it like just hurting them? So people would ride the elephants. Right. On top of the elephants were war towers where there would be the guy who drives the elephant and a general who now has a better vantage point because he's on top of an elephant and an archer who now also has a better vantage point. Damn. Yeah. yeah. Well, more so my point was just that if people are riding the elephants and then people were riding the horses and were scared. So the Mongols, like... I can only imagine that they were riding these on-fire camels to break through the elephant siege. 
Yeah, so the on-fire camels scared the elephants, because that's... Okay. that's... The elephants were like, whoa, what are those tiny fucked-up elephants that are on fire? <laughs> yeah, so that's the disadvantage to elephants. Though they're enormous and scary, they are easily scared. And um, when they're injured or scared, or the person who is the driver of the elephant gets tossed off or killed... Um, freak out and just pretty much charge and crush anything near them, including, you know, the army they're on the side of. Um, so the people who are on, in these war towers on the elephants carried with them a little, uh, a little chisel and a hammer that they used when an elephant initially got injured or if they thought it was about to go, go, uh, go rogue, they would, uh, you know, just... Give that elephant a little chisel to kill it so it doesn't kill everyone on their army. Promise us the goofy story. <laughs> this is a sad story. <laughs> Please tell me the elephants didn't get tuberculosis and die in the mills. No, they died right from the chisel. Did they tell the elephants to think about rabbits and living off the fat of the land? Where did they chisel the elephant? I mean, I know that's kind of a brutal question, but I'm curious. Like, near the neck, near the back of the head. Oh, so, like, right in their spinal cord, basically. Yeah. So it was quick, so it wouldn't be able to freak out and crush people. They could just... Real quick. Anyway! So elephants were used in a lot of different battles. Um, famously, um, Alexander the Great had a couple battles where elephants were involved. Hannibal had some elephants. Hannibal took elephants across the mountains and used vinegar to break up calcium-infused boulders so they could pass. Oh, that's cool. Yep. That's a max fact. But I want to talk about um, elephants being used much later than you would think they would be used in warfare. (laughs) Uh, So around the 16th century, gunpowder hit the scene. Um, and it was a lot easier to injure an elephant when you had gunpowder. Sure, because you give him a big, uh, big cigar and you light it, and it turns out the cigar explodes. Mm-hmm. And the elephant is it's, it's, it's scared and it's hurt by an exploding cigar, and, and also hurt by your betrayal. Yeah. 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 So eventually elephants were phased out of direct combat because yeah. of all the cigars. I don't think people were giving their own elephants the exploding cigar. Well, no, that's so. you, you sneak behind enemy lines and you befriend an elephant. Oh, yeah. And then you give him an elephant-sized cigar to smoke during the battle, being like, hey, we're on, we're on opposite sides, but... And if I see you smoking that cigar, I'll know it's my friend. I won't I won't, I won't kill any kill of these other elephants that I'm on the same yeah, side of. Yeah, yeah, and then the elephant's like, hey, you're okay, man. <laughs> and then, uh, you're the only one who laughed at my stand-up bit. <laughs> <laughs> and the elephant smokes the cigar with his trunk and explodes, and the trunk just looks like a peeled banana. Oh, no. That's terrifying. Yeah, it was an image I had in my mind that I had to share with you, because otherwise it would have only been my head. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, So, after the 16th century, um, elephants were mostly used for transportation and logistics. Like, they would carry supplies or beasts. Right after battles. (laughs) (laughs) The elephant just, this giant warm-up, they're like moving pieces around. They're a little trunk. Drawing a little portrait of the enemy forces with a little paintbrush. Making a little motion with his head and then moving the general's troops just slightly, and then the general is like, ah! Oh, Pretending I can't move the, the, the pieces because they're too heavy, and then moving the pieces and laughing at everyone who thought it was totally fooled. That one situation where the general was fooled when he thought it was really heavy. 
And he like, <laughs> and he like went to pick it up, and he's like, "What? Is something wrong? I can lift it just." He used all of his strength to pull up, pick it up, and it just fell over because he overbalanced yeah. too hard. You expect a much heavier piece. But then the general realized that you know he like got confidence from that. You know, like taught him that he was like stronger than he initially thought. Mm-hmm. So he wanted the battle. And then the elephant stepped on him. Yeah. <laughs> Now on the CW, irrelevance. Uh, so in 1942, <laughs> during World War II, uh, Japan invaded Burma, and they pushed back British forces who had been in Burma. Um, so they got pushed back into India. Luckily, luckily, James Howard Billy Williams, a World War One veteran who was so scarred from World War One that he said. I'm going to get as far out of the West as I can and went to Burma, was there. And he knew that this was the time because since he moved to Burma, he had done nothing but become an elephant whisperer. He he was always a fan of animals. Um, And then when he left Western civilization, he, um, he joined the Elephant Corps for like building local bridges and in the logging industry. And he learned the tips of the trade from elephant trainers. Um, And he, along with his mentor, were the ones who first started doing positive training where you show love to your elephants instead of, you know, teaching them by hitting them and things like that. So he knew that he had this special bond with these elephants. And that he could use them to help the British in World War II. So he and his troop of elephants, who at one point he had 1,600 elephants under his command. This is a man <laughs> I would never cross. No, we never cross the man with over a thousand <laughs> elephants who will all love him unconditionally. And he whispers things about you to them and that eyes crinkle up because they know you're talking about. <laughs> you know you're being talked about behind your back. Yeah, so he joined British Special Forces and basically, like, gave intelligence and did some spying and, like, built some bridges and things like that. Spying? With the elephants? I'm just picturing an elephant in a tuxedo at a fancy party. I don't think they went undercover. I think it was more like, we're going to take our elephants to get to this place kind of quickly, look around, scout out where the Japanese are, and then go back. I like the idea of elephant spies a lot better. (laughs) Elephants playing Baccarat, (laughs) pretending the cards are too heavy. (laughs) (laughs) This guy was in the same special forces unit as Ian Fleming, the man who wrote (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you couldn't make oh. up that. Uh, <laughs> One scene where the elephants like in like a like a casino or something are like just gambling around. They're like, oh, we don't want to address. Well, we have to address the elephant in the room. He starts looking like really nervous. <laughs> they're like, there is no ice for these drinks. <laughs> he just looks all relieved. Mopping his head with a little hankery. But he gets up on the trying. table and like crushes yeah. the car. <laughs> Stumps away. Goes to the pool and there's an elephant in a bikini waiting for him to seduce him who actually works for the enemy. Ian Fleming tries to seduce the elephant 
And, like, he just fails. He, like, he strikes out miserably. He goes and he drinks at the hotel bar and in a bitter rage writes okay. the first James Bond book yeah. you know, where all the enemies are elephants and he takes it to the editor and he's like, look, we love it. This is a oh, brilliant work. No one was going to believe an elephant villain. Everyone's going to root for the elephant. you yeah. got to change it. I don't know. The Russians. And in a fury, just like, crosses it all out. <laughs> Apparently in real life, Ian Fleming was like a very unlikable man. Yeah, he was a horrible person. Yeah. And very misogynistic. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Which is why he struck out with the elephant. Elephants can tell. Yeah. Elephants. And they and he just didn't get her sense of humor. Like she wanted somebody that really like really like laughed when she tried to yeah. pretend she couldn't pick something up and then <laughs> picked it up. <laughs> I know you can pick up that martini glass, Miss Elephants. Oh, you are splashing me with the water from this high upscale pool. You're shaking that martini, not stirring it. <laughs> So his big mission with the elephants um, was that he was supposed to go and get a bunch of refugees and then retreat back to India where these refugees could be safe. So um, they ended up getting cornered by the Japanese on like all these different routes they could take. And they weren't immediately cornered, but they knew that they were Japanese troops um, like farther down the road in different ways. So they had nowhere to go, and they were all of these elephants, 64 refugees, and um, they're just facing a 300-foot sheer cliff. They got those elephants up that cliff. (laughs) Over the course of two days, they cleared brush and chiseled steps only as big as an elephant's foot into this cliff so that the elephants could climb up 300 feet. It took the elephants three hours each to get from the bottom to the top. You know, that's very fast for, like, how how much work that must have been. Yeah. yeah, doing that in three days is kind of incredible, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it's amazing. Also, I kind of love the image of, like, probably the other people who were refugees were like, well, I guess we have to leave behind these elephants. Like, it's really <laughs> sad. And he just turns, he's like, leave no elephant behind. <laughs> and, um, they all made it. Every elephant made it. Even Aww. though they could have easily toppled and crushed all the refugees and every elephant behind them in line. But they all made it. Why wouldn't you send most of the people first? I think they did send the people for now. <laughs> yeah, and one of the elephants start to fall. Just hold your hands up and keep them into crust fall. <laughs> when I was reading the article about this, it said that they made an elephant staircase, and I was like, yes, they stacked the elephants so that the refugees could climb up this sheer, this sheer cliff. A circus performance. See, I sort of assumed, like, when you said they got the elephants up the cliff, that it would be like a... Like a pulley system. Like a pulley system. Like, they pulled them up, but nope. <laughs> Elephant stairs. <laughs> so, I knew, when you first mentioned the 300-foot sheer cliff, I was imagining that they were walking along landmass that then oh, fell into jumped. a cliff, and then, oh, like, and up. they jumped. <laughs> Cue, like, 80s guitar riff. Like a river down below. It's like, all right, we gotta jump, guys. One of the elephants was named Thelma, and the other one was named Louise. So they made it up the cliff, and then they crossed five other mountain ranges and made it to India. Damn. 
And then the elephants jumped up in the air and high-five each other with their trunks. Mm-hmm. Clicked their little heels. Yeah. <laughs> so was it the entire 1,600 elephant army, or was it a I don't think so. Force? I think it was a smaller number of elephants. It was a small crack team of elephants to perform the heist. I would watch the hell out of this movie. I would totally, though, right? I guess right? the hardest thing is, like, getting the elephants, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, have you ever seen Operation Dumbo Drop? Yes. They really dropped that Dumbo. High five. So, uh... That's my story. So if you had to, to smuggle an elephant somewhere, where would you smuggle an elephant? Uh, are we going for, like, what's the most fun? Or, like, what's the place you could practically smuggle an elephant? Dealer's choice. Okay. Where do you want to see an elephant where there shouldn't be elephants? Or aren't allowed to be elephants. Well, I'm I'm a generous person, so I want to I, I want yeah. to smuggle this elephant to join the um, FDNY because you know that's this elephant's desire to be a firefighter. Why else would you put water in your trunk and spurt it around? Um, so I would smuggle one into the training corps and um, you know work with him through the training program. Um, probably give him a pep talk at the right time when you have the final exam. Right. Um, just to see the smile of pride in the crinkle of his eyes. Um, I would, uh, use the elephant to go visit sick orphan children who had to work in the mills. (laughs) Because I think that, you know, the elephant would be less lonely and it would really touch the orphan children's hearts. I would want to smuggle him into some like, like deep sea vessel, like a submarine, in like some room that's like used just for storage. Like I'm not imagining so much a submarine, but like a deep sea like. You're gonna throw off the buoyancy of whatever you're in. Yeah, yeah. You're all gonna die. The entire time we're trying to figure out what's wrong. They're like, go check the back. (laughs) You're like. Ten, like 5,000, 10,000 people up here to the tour. There's just this elephant standing in the middle of the room, drinking all the water, eating all the food. Pooping all the poop. Yeah, they're just like, oh, what? Noah! Uh, I would take an elephant to SeaWorld because I think they would have a really nice day. Aww. Also because I want to see you. I would also try and smuggle them into the orca tank or into swimming with the dolphins. Or like the petting tank. <laughs> petting tank. The Here, this, is the, this is a sea ray touch tank. <laughs> no, Jumbo, no! Oh man, this this whole elephant at SeaWorld scenario raises so many animal rights questions. Yeah, SeaWorld's pretty terrible. I would use the elephant to free the orcas Ooh. and the elephant would stand on a little seawall and like raise its trunk while an orca tried to jump no, over I, it but I, really I, just jumped into it and knocked itself and the elephant into the water on the other side maybe the elephant <laughs> is like a grizzled ex-circus elephant who's been abused like in his own life and like he's performing an elaborate heist with a bunch of other elephants to free all the whales at SeaWorld because like he understands their abuse and like the whole thing is like part crime movie, part drama. I'm imagining this like they they yeah. sneak out the elephants. The like, elephants are being snuck out, but like they still have to do the show, so the elephants just get into giant whale costumes <laughs> and, do, and do tricks. And then like they find out after, oh, you see an elephant. 
You see a whale-shaped thing with just like an elephant <laughs> from like <laughs> doing tricks. And, and there was just one look here's like, that, that orca's very sick. <laughs> Foiled again. <laughs> well, that's about all the time we have uh, this week on Anachronismo. I'm Max. I'm Jackie. I'm Noel. I'm Kate, your corner historian. And this has been Anachronismo! Ooh, that feeling of hyperextending your foot. Oh, you poor boy. Ooh. Poor sweet Noel. <laughs> Max, kill me. Okay. Please. No, just no, it's really think awful. about rabbits, Noel. No. <laughs> think about rabbits. No, they scare me. <laughs>